Our scripture reading this morning comes, as you would expect, from the book of Ezekiel. If you have been with us in the previous weeks, we are doing a sermon series on the book of Ezekiel, and we now reach chapter 34. Ezekiel 34, we're going to read the whole chapter. Ezekiel 34, receive this with faith, faith with, with love. This is the word of the Lord to you. Thus says the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they become food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they might not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat while you have trodden with your feet and drink while you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, says the Lord God, Thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust 
at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be the prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers of their season. They shall be, they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall be no more prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. Many people believe Julius Caesar was the most influential figure in Roman history. Others think of Brutus, the king's lair, or Augustus, the great emperor. Yet a relatively unknown figure has a place, or should have a place, among ancient Rome's great power players. He was known as the Polarius, also known as the priest of sacred chicken. You see, in ancient Rome, these priests have uh, raised a special breed of chickens for making auguries, for making divinations. No significant action was undertaken by senators or generals without first, in, without first consulting the sacred chickens. To draw these omens, the Polarius would put some food before the chickens and see what happened. One historian explains, if they ate it avidly while stamping their feet and scattering it here and there, the augury was favorable. If they refused to eat and drink, the omen was bad, and the undertaking for which was consulted, consulted was abandoned. One remarkable example of how important the Polarius was seen in ancient Rome is the story of Publius Claudius Poker. Claudius was the commander of a 120-sheep fleet in the First Punic War. And before his first battle, Claudius consulted with the Polarius on board of his sheep, ship. The chicken priest performed the ritual and told him the chicken had not eaten. He should not proceed. Claudius ignored the advice, saying, let them drink if they do not want to eat and throw them overboard. He then went on to suffer the only naval defeat the Romans had in that war, losing almost a hundred ships 
in one fell swoop. He was later tried for treason for ignoring the Polarius advice. What a relief, then, you should be thinking right now. When we look back to these ancient people and think, well, I'm glad our leaders nowadays are better and smarter than those guys consulting chicken. Right? Right? <laughs> our politicians, our bosses, our parents, and even, why not, our pastors are not that unintelligent, are they? Are they? Well, my point is navigating life requires more wisdom than consulting chickens to inquire about the gods. You should all know that. So it often seems like people over us are going about doing just that. As we go about in this life, we face pain, weakness, discouragement, death. And sometimes all we need is someone to grab us by the hand and say, everything will be okay. I know the way. And our hope, as we come here this morning, is that the person that does this knows a bit better than consulting chicken to guide us, right? This morning, through the pen of the prophet Ezekiel, we, we, we will receive guidance from one who knows, from the good shepherd, the one who gathers us and gathers us around his table to nourish our souls. This morning, as we turn to God's promises of restoration that close, begin to close this book, we will see that for this life and the next, all we need is the guidance and provision of Jesus Christ, our shepherd king. Again, this is the main point of this chapter. For this life and the next, all we need is the guidance and provision of Jesus Christ, our shepherd king. We'll see that in three points this morning. And the first one is, the Lord is the only true good shepherd king. Again, the Lord is the only true good shepherd king. We see that in verses 1 through 10. Last week, those who were here saw in chapter 33 that the divine sword finally fell upon God's people in judgment. Jerusalem fell. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, broke their walls and their spirits, leveled the city, destroyed the temple. We also learned that this was actually good news for the people of God, since after that, God opened Ezekiel's mouth to proclaim restoration. The idea is that with nothing left to tear down, Ezekiel could now build them up again. And this is exactly the pattern that we see in our text this morning. While Ezekiel spent 32 chapters making it clear that everyone was personally responsible for that collective punishment, we have also seen in this series so far, some people had a large share of guilt than others. Chapter 8 and 12 showed us the elders of the people and their ruling prince committing all sorts of abominations as they led the people. So when Ezekiel comes here and confronts these bad shepherds of Israel, you should know that he is talking about kings and rulers, not those who work on the fields gathering sheep. In ancient Near East, 
from Babylon to Egypt, the king of a nation was always seen as the people's shepherd. Historians say, for example, that Hammurabi, the famous king, and his successors in Babylon and Assyria all refer to themselves as divine shepherds. So Ezekiel's charges on this text are against the parade of evil kings that we read about in the books of Kings and Chronicles, who led the people astray like bad shepherds, often for their own sake and interests. In the words of a commentator, the kings of Judah for the century or more prior to the fall of Jerusalem had, with few exceptions, been moral and spiritual failures whose reigns had led the people further and further, further into idolatry, injustice, and social collapse. Which, when you think about it, as much as it is a good summary of the last kings of Israel and Judah, it's also, unfortunately, a good summary of church history, hasn't it? The ever-present temptation of using the perceived power one gets by being even the pastor of the smallest congregation has led to many unfortunate and sad tales of abuse, oppression, leading the people of God astray. Whether it's status, power, of mo or money, we all know stories of dear ones who, like in verse 6, are found scattered and under attack with nobody to seek and save them from danger, being harmed by those who vowed to protect them. And the seriousness of this kind of crime is highlighted by the repetition of the expression, my sheep, at least five times in these ten verses, and then many times more throughout the chapter. These are God's people, not theirs. They, the shepherds, the kings, are merely under-shepherds. They're God's people, I'll repeat that. So to those that Ezekiel is talking to now, the reminder that the flock actually is not theirs, but God's should cause fear and trembling. And to them, let the fall of Jerusalem be a warning to those who fail to care for God's people. God will not take that lightly. So it's not a surprise that he is not happy at all with the situation. I am against the shepherds, he says, and I will remove them. He will rescue his sheep and destroy those wolf-looking false shepherds. This is the first thing we needed to see today from our text. Before we can even confess like we did this morning that the Lord is our shepherd, we must realize that God alone is the great true shepherd of his people. He will not tolerate lousy shepherding under his watch. Which leads us then to our second point this morning. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Again, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. We see that in verses 11 through 24. The human shepherd kings have failed, so God will now personally care for his sheep, we see in this section. First we see, he tells us that he will gather those who were led astray. He will bring back those living under the heavy yoke of enemies 
and oppressors. Once again, this was seen in the ancient Near East as a task of the kings. The kings were the gatherers of the people. So much so that even to our surprise, God calls even Cyrus, the Persian ruler in the book of, Israel, of Isaiah, his shepherd. Because Cyrus' decree authorized God's people to return to Israel. Kings were the gatherers of the people. And God will do that for them. Second thing, God will nourish them, tending to their needs. You should let the words of verse 16 wash over you who are here this morning, weary, tired, and heavy laden. I will seek the lost, says God. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them Injustice. I will, I will, I will, says God. All that the oppressive rulers had failed to do, says one commentator, God Himself will accomplish. The third thing He promised to do is to promote justice. The shepherd king will use his staff, his scepter, staff, and his scepter rod, not only to guide and care, but also to hit some of his sheep hard in the head. You see, in the last verses of this section, Ezekiel expands the sheep metaphor to highlight, to highlight how some people among the flock were oppressing and exploiting others, which again is not difficult to see in our midst Sometimes all it takes is being the head of a committee or the leader of a small Bible study group to turn sheep into goats who struggle over any tiny inch of perceived rank, status, or power. And God will once again have none of that. He will bring justice among the sheep. So the main thing here for you to realize is that God promises He will personally handle all that. To say that the Lord is our shepherd is more than just, again, the image of the scrappy herder of sheep in those bucolic pictures that you find at Hobby Lobby. He's saying he is the shepherd king from the line of David who will be with them, among them, in their midst Verses 23 and 24, he will gather, he will protect, he will rule over his sheep with power, with justice, and with goodness. So if this is how God promises to care for his people, gathering them, caring for them, and promoting justice among them, it's very easy then, when we have that picture in mind, to actually identify the person who does that when he appears in the pages of the New Testament, isn't it? Again, in John chapter 10, we find this man, the divine God-man, great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. 
interpreting Ezekiel 34 and saying to all who had ears to hear, I am the good shepherd. And now that we have this context of Ezekiel 34 in our minds, we can now understand why it's such a big deal for him to say that. He's not just saying he's going to be a kind man to all. This was such a big deal for Jesus to say that I am the good shepherd. That after he said it, you can look back to John chapter 1 later this afternoon. Some people first thought he was possessed by demons when he said that. And then others gathered stones to kill him. Just because he said, I am the good shepherd. Friends, when Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, he's saying he's the fulfillment of God's promise in Ezekiel 34. He is identifying as God, as Yahweh himself. And also when you realize what, that he's looking back to Ezekiel 34, he's also implicitly, when he's saying, I am the good shepherd, saying that God is against For example, the mad king Herod, that God is against the Jewish authorities of his time who oppressed the other sheep with their man-made laws. And those are very dangerous statements for him to be doing. It's no wonder then that those two parties later would gather to kill him. This is what we need to see in our second point. Jesus is the one who seeks the lost, brings back the strayed, binds the injured, strengthens the weak, destroys their strong abusers. Jesus Christ is the shepherd king who protects his people, even to the point of taking their place when they were to be slaughtered like sheep for their transgressions. And then, by defeating death, sin, and hell in his resurrection, he begins the shepherding task of gathering to himself all his sheep who are wandering astray in this entire world. And what does that mean for me and for you this morning? We will see in our last point. If Jesus, the true Good shepherd king is your shepherd, you shall not want. Again, if Jesus, the true good shepherd king, is your shepherd, you shall not want. We see that in verses 25 to 31. You see, the people of God, when you think about it, ever since Adam rebelled against God's rule in the garden, have been wandering astray. Most, mostly often under the leadership of sinful people. Even their best leaders as we look to the Old Testament, guys like David and Abraham, the great king, the great father Abraham, all fell to the temptation of using their positions of power for their own good. In Jesus Christ alone, and only in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, we find God's final and definite solution to that problem that began in Genesis 1. And I bring that up because Ezekiel brings that up in this last section. In verses 25 to 29, you see the description of how Jesus gathers his sheep sounds much like a return 
to the garden paradise of Eden. The earth shall yield its fruit. The beasts of the land shall not be a threat. No one will be oppressed in slavery ever again. They shall dwell secure. None shall make them afraid. In a world now where many live daily in fear, this promise should be a profound comfort. Natural disasters, state-sponsored persecution, social injustice, crime, insecurity in old age, and death. We all have something to fear. To his sheep who fear God then promises through the shepherding of His Son a perfect and never-ending state of prosperity and well-being. And the great news for us this morning is that there is a way for us to grasp and hold fast to those promises. There is a way for us to be a part of these sheep. Verse 25 God himself will establish a new covenant with his people, a new agreement, a new pact. He will seek them out to be their God, and they will be his people. In verse 31, by the way, just to make this whole thing clear and to bring it to a nice touch and close, the word for human in verse 31 in Hebrew is the word Adam, Adam. So the promise of this text to all of those who gather before him this morning is, I will be your God and you will be my new and restored Adam humanity. He will restore all of that that we lost and that we have been trying desperately to go back to but can't. And we think so far in Ezekiel, when we think about this promise, so far in this book, the words, they will know that I am God, that appear repeatedly, always meant after the sword falls, after my justice is satisfied, after my wrath, then they will see that I am God, they will see that I am justice, they will see that sin has to be punished, then they will see that I am God. Now, at this point, with promises of restoration, we will know that He is our God when He gathers, gathers us in peace, in justice, in rest, in a restored relationship with creation, with one another, and with Himself. So here, at this point, we realize that not only Ezekiel brought, brought us back to Genesis 1, but he's leading us all the way through Revelation 22. When on the last day, all of these things, this promised paradise, will be entirely and truly fulfilled. He's talking about the past, he's talking about the present, and he's putting ahead of us a hope for the future. And if this sounds all too good to be true and too remote, in a way, yes, it is. All those promises are still finding their fulfillment. They are all not visible before our eyes. 
but because of Jesus Christ, because He already come, because of His ministry on earth, because of what He did, because of His death and resurrection, He has established for His people a covenant of peace. He did that through the shedding of His blood and through the resurrection of His body from the dead. And because all of that, we now, even now, can enjoy a taste, a foretaste of all these blessings in this earth, in this life, right now, if we belong to Him. And this is what we celebrate today at this table right in front of us. In this meal, we partake of the body and the blood of the Good Shepherd who laid His life for His sheep. He nourishes through this food. Through the Spirit of God who unites us to Christ, we eat and we drink. The weak are strengthened, the injured are bound up, and the lost and strayed find their home as He tells them that He is bringing them home, guiding them like a Savior Shepherd that we sung. So in this meal that we're going to take in a few minutes, our Good Shepherd nourishes us for the journey towards that day, that great day, when we will all be gathered together forever in His presence in the new paradise described to us in Revelation 7, with which I close the sermon. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us pray. Father, we do not deserve this glimpse of heaven. We are prone to wonder. We are unable to redeem ourselves from sin, death, and hell. Yet you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, who is far more precious than heaven itself and much stronger than all our enemies. For this, we rejoice, we praise, and we thank you. Through him you take sin, death, and hell from us and grant us all that belongs to him. In his precious name we pray as we wait for his return. And together we say, Amen. Amen.